This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. I just wanted to say, welcome to the day, before the day, before the day, before the day that most of us go on a new diet and exercise regime. (laughs) Isn't that how that works? You know what that really means? Only three more days to eat junk food without guilt, all right? That's what that really means, all right? So uh, uh, now, welcome to church. My name is Ron, and uh, we're going to have so much fun here this morning. And for those of you who are new to New Life, I just want to say welcome aboard. And uh, we are on a spiritual journey as a church, and uh, it's a journey. Hello. Hey, hey, hey. It's a journey we've been on for uh, quite some time, and uh, it's one that we never actually take a break from, and that's a great thing, because we recognize a number of very important things about life, and I'm going to be unfolding those for you this morning in a brand new sermon series called Pursuing Spiritual Excellence, and uh, so I just want to welcome you on that journey. Uh, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. First of all, uh, we have a very distinguished guest here this morning, and I would like to introduce her. She is my mother. Her name is Margaret. Mom, would you stand, please? I owe an awfully lot to her, and you are, are the wonderful recipients of years of training and prayer and all that she has put into me. You cannot imagine what I would be without her input. So there you go. And if I happen to be on my very best behavior this morning, you'll know why. All right? Now, having said that, I want to talk to you about a very unique Christmas gift I got. It's one of the most meaningful ones I got this year, and uh, it wasn't very big. It came from a lady in this church. And I went back to the office after the Christmas Eve service and had the small little package that when it was given to me, It was about the shape of a candy bar, and I said, if I put this in my pocket, will it melt? And she said, no. And when I got back to the office, I could not imagine what was in that little package. I opened it up, and there were three little brass numbers. Okay? The first one was a four. The second one was a one. What do you think the last one was? Ah, if you'd been here a month ago, you would know. 419 doesn't mean a whole lot to anybody who wasn't here a month ago. But a month ago, I delivered a sermon based upon the passage of Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, which says, My God shall supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That was a wonderful challenge for all of us to look at everything that was given to us. This day is a 419 day. It's been supplied to us by God. It is His gift to us. And nothing thrills him more than for us to live it in that context. And everything that we have. And so, kind of a a very unique thing, if you were to go to New Life, to our new campus that's being built, and if you were to go look at the concrete in the floor where they poured some new concrete for the, for the, the, um, the foundation of our new walls, the footings, um, I was encouraged and pressed to go out and write something in that concrete, right? And the last thing I wanted to write was my name in that concrete. It just, just, it's not consistent with who I am. 
But as I was walking out there, the Lord said, why don't you write 419 in that concrete for it has been supplied by God. So the only two things in that concrete are the date that it was poured and the numbers 419. So uh, anyhow, that was one of my most unique Christmas gifts and one that I will treasure for a long, long time. Now let's talk about the new sermon series. And on the inside of your program, you'll find a folded sheet of notes. And uh, probably is going to be that way throughout this entire sermon series because we are, are going to embark on a journey of pursuing spiritual excellence. And, you know, spirituality is a very hot topic in the North Bay. In fact, I believe you'd have to look a long ways to find a territory in our country that is more spiritual than where we live. And now, a lot of these people don't go to church, and they're not necessarily Christian, but boy, they are spiritual. And in fact, you know, I, I, I just thought, hmm, I'm going to do a Google search on spirituality and see what comes up. So I just uh, went to Google, I plugged in spirituality, and here are some of the topics on the first page that came up. Reconnective healing. Establish a connection with your multidimensional healing inner nature. Psychometrics. Spirituality inventory with free confidential report sent to you. Healing with mandalas. David J. Bookbinder illuminates the ancient art of mandalas with his stunning flower photo art to help you heal and transform. This one really intrigued me. Holistic spirituality. Elizabeth Gilbert, author of the best-selling spiritual memoir on keeping the inner flame lit, Hollywood a-calling, and what happened with her sublime Brazilian lover. Here's another one that piqued my interest. Original faith, and the subtitle was Taking the Hell Out of God Talk. Spirituality for Today, an interactive monthly magazine dedicated to a variety of current themes and questions concerning the Christian faith in this postmodern age. ThePsychicGuide.com, wondering what the future holds, what path to choose, when you will meet your soulmate, and much more. We can help you find direction and lead you down the correct path. Here, you can learn about the psychic world and all it has to offer, and with big exclamation points, even talk to an online psychic. Wikipedia. I found this most interesting, and in fact, I'm going to refer back to it later on in the sermon. Here's how Wikipedia defined spirituality. Spiritual matters are those involving humankind's ultimate nature, not merely as a biological organism, but as a being with a unique relationship to that which is beyond both time and material experience. Hmm. Believe it or not, Wikipedia is telling you the truth. It doesn't give a lot of definition to that. It leaves it kind of wide open. But boy, does it nail that. That really is, we talk about pursuing spiritual excellence. We're going to talk about that relationship with something that lies beyond 
material organism, a biological organism, and material time and space. Let me give you a couple of things that I'm going to talk to you about in terms of this whole sermon series. Let's break down the title first of all. And the title is Pursuing Spiritual Excellence. I'm going to talk to you from the stand, not from the standpoint of observation. Everyone in the world has a set of beliefs about what's true and what isn't true. And there's really only two ways that you get that set of beliefs. And the first is through observation. That is crafting a set of beliefs about truth based on the observation of the experiences, thoughts, and opinions of yourself and other people. In other words, there are people that go through this world and they say, how do I know what's true and what isn't true? Well, here's what my standard is going to be. I'm going to observe what other people do and I'm going to observe what other people say and based upon whatever I resonate with or what the majority of people think, I'm going to buy into that as true. And that's by observation. Now, the second is by revelation. And let me talk to you what, about what that means. That's crafting a set of beliefs about truth based upon what God has revealed in His Word. Now, it's no mystery to you because this is a church I'm going to talk to you from the, from the second platform. Okay? Because if I were to talk to you from the platform of human observation, we all know all you have to do is take a cursory study of history and how, how often has the majority of people been wrong about their opinion on a certain subject. Over and over and over again. And yet very well-meaning people have bought completely into that, believing that it had to be true because it was based upon somebody's observation and their thoughts and their opinions. And because they had a lot of degrees or whatever else, then everybody bought into it. And I could give you some very notable illustrations in the history of our own country where we've had whole generations of families who have, who have paid a horrible price because they bought into something that somebody said who was, quote, well qualified. And that's the problem with observation. It's only as good as human beings. And we all know that we are human beings and we're often wrong. Now the flip side, the other side, is revelation. It's far better if we could have an eternal God who never lies and is 100% true if He would take the time to write out what is true and what isn't true, how much better would it be for us to buy into that? Well, that's exactly what God did. That's what the Bible is. It is God's words and thoughts about the truth of this life in written form. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the evidence for that, but there's a mountain of evidence to support that. And so what I'm going to talk to you about when we're talking about pursuing spiritual excellence is not how to gaze at a flower until somehow you're transformed by that mandala into, into something that you're not today because somebody tried that somewhere and they felt like they were different from looking at, 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 at a mandala. I'm going to talk to you about what God has to say about how life really works and how spirituality really works. That's the foundation. Now, let's break down the, the, the title, as I said to you a while ago. And there are three major words in it, pursuing spiritual excellence. Spiritual is this. You remember what Wikipedia said? Basically what it said is, we are spiritual beings 
more than we are physical beings. And that's true. We are spiritual beings undergoing a physical experience. And God has said that in His Word over and over again. You are not the body that you look at. You are a spiritual being and and your spirit or your soul is eternal. You will always be somewhere doing something. The question is, where will you be and what will you be doing? And the amazing thing is, while you live in this physical body, God gives you the opportunity and the power and the privilege to determine where you will be in eternity and what you will be doing in eternity. That's the great thing about spiritual excellence. It has power not only in this life, but in the life to come. That's why this series is such an important one. Now, let's take a look at the next word, and that's the word excellence. Since God has given you uh, uh, an eternal spirit, I would say to you that your eternal spirit deserves nothing less than the very best you can invest in it. Wouldn't you say that? Yeah. Now, I kind of laughed and joked about us getting on diet and exercise programs. It's amazing the billions of dollars that we put into getting, getting these bodies to look a little better and last a little longer. But, you know, in spite of all the money we put in, guess what? We all grow old, we all die, and we all hurt, and we all ache. Isn't that true? I never used to say that when I was a kid. <laughs> That's the way that goes. Anyway, so... But what about our spirit? You know, the amazing thing is, I've met many people. In fact, I'm going to read you a story at the very end of this sermon about a lady whose body was completely just broken. But her spirit was amazing. And you're going to see that this was a lady who understood that her eternal spirit deserved nothing less than the very best. And she was a lady who pursued spiritual excellence. And then the third word I want to talk to you about is that word pursuing. Because excellence in any field is the result of of, um, a calculated and disciplined pursuit. I don't care what you do. You could be anything from a ditch digger to the CEO of the company. Whatever you do, if you do it with excellence, the excellence is not the result of an accident that took place in your life. The excellence is the result of a disciplined, very disciplined, carefully chosen and and calculated pursuit. And the same thing is true in your spiritual life. If you if you have spiritual excellence, it's going to be because you have very carefully calculated what it takes to be a spiritually excellent person and you have disciplined yourself to bring into your life the strategies and the schedule and the activities that will produce spiritual excellence in your life. It is a pursuit. I can tell you that spiritual excellence will not pursue you. Okay? You have to pursue spiritual excellence. That's why we're talking about that this morning. And that's really what the topic means. Now let's go to the Bible setting. We are going to take a wonderful journey through an a book in the Bible in the Old Testament. It's the book of Daniel. And even if you've never been to church before, you've probably heard of Daniel because he's one of the Bible's most famous characters. And we're going to start following his life from the time that he was probably a late teenager all the way to the end of his life. 
and he actually served under four different kings from two different empires, and he actually lived under five different kings from three different empires, although he only served under two. It's, it's an interesting story, but the reason that we're choosing to follow the life and the book of Daniel in the Old Testament is because I believe as much as any other person whose life story was recorded in Scripture, Daniel was a man who pursued spiritual excellence his entire life. And his life is just rich with lessons and stories for us to learn about pursuing spiritual excellence. So, having said that as as our setting, let's jump into the historical setting, and we get that in the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now what you must understand is the king of Judah, Judah was a portion of the nation of Israel. And these were the people that God said to Moses, go down to Egypt and lead my people out. And these were the chosen people of God during this particular period of time. And he had taken them into their promised land, which was the land of Canaan that later became known as the land of Israel. And this was the king uh, next to the last king that that nation ever had. And his name was Jehoiakim. It was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan man. By pagan, I mean he was an idol worshiper. He knew nothing of the one God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and before whom every human being would eventually stand and give an account of what he had done or she had done with the life that God had entrusted to their care as long as they lived on this earth. He knew nothing of that concept. His concept of a God was that there were multiple gods and they were territorial. And his idea was to find the God, first of all, that was the God of his territory. And secondly, that was more powerful than any of these other kind of local deities. And if he could offer enough sacrifices and do enough good things, perhaps that God would smile on him and make his life go well on this earth. Now, that guy came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That means he took his army, he put his army all around the city, and he wouldn't let anyone go in and he wouldn't let anyone go out. And the idea was to cut off these people from their food and water supply, and eventually when they got hungry enough, they would come out and surrender. That was the deal. So that's what he did. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Does that strike you as kind of unusual? Here's God delivering his own people into the hand of a pagan ruler. Now on the surface, that makes no sense. But if you go back and study the history of the nation of Israel, this was at the end of about 500 years of continual rebellion against God that was only periodically interrupted by times when they worshipped and served Him. And finally God said, enough is enough. You're going down. And so God delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. God even let him come into the church, take the communion table. And okay, we don't have one of those, but you understand what I'm talking about? To take some of the stuff right out of their temple. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon. 
in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was definitely making a statement. And you know what he was doing? Every nation that he conquered, he went into their, into the, their temple of their God and he took out their stuff and he brought it in and put it in the trophy case of his God. That's a pretty serious spiritual statement, isn't it? That's exactly what he was doing. So that's the setting. By the way, does that sound like a good deal or not such a good deal? That's a tough time. Very, very tough time to go through a besiegement and then to be carried off uh, as a captive. So here's where we learn the very first lesson out of the book of Daniel. Those who pursue spiritual excellence must become spiritually resilient people. Now, I have to tell you that the more I've studied this, the more excited I've become about the concept of being spiritually resilient. Now, if you wonder what resilient means, it's the ability to bounce back. Everybody takes hits in life, but resilient people don't go down for the count. Resilient people come back. And so this is a very tough time in the nation of Israel and only those people who are spiritually resilient will bounce back and continue to pursue spiritual excellence. Others will get detoured and, 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 and maybe never get back on the right track. So the first thing that I want you to know is that it's of paramount importance in your life and mine that if we will live this life successfully, we must learn how to become spiritually resilient people. So how are we going to do that? Well, there, there are some wonderful lessons throughout the rest of the morning on what spiritually resilient people do. But before we get into those, let's take a look at Daniel's background. Because the next part of the book tells us about Daniel. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Man, would you love to have that said about you? I'm one of those. I mean, we are talking about the creme de la creme, right? The very, very top. They, they, these are people of noble birth. These are people from the royal lineage of the nation of Israel. These are people who are sharp and intelligent and, and very quickly learn not just math or science or history or whatever, but they learn it all and they learn it quickly and they learn it well. And these are people that, that have social grace about them, the kind that you could put them in the king's palace and the king would never have to worry about them embarrassing him because of, you know, belching in public or something like that. I don't know. But the deal is, these people were fit to be in the king's palace. Now, that was Daniel's background. Now, I want you to know that Daniel was on the way up in a country that was on its way down. Yeah. Daniel had every reason to be arrogant and haughty and condescending and exclusive. He had all the stuff that people would want. He was born into a noble family. We'll see in a minute. He was born into the tribe of Judah, which was the ruling tribe where all the kings of Judah came from. He was born into that tribe. He was handsome. He was intelligent. He had no physical defect in his whole body. Uh, he, was, he just had the whole deal. 
And yet, there was something wonderfully wholesome about Daniel that's often lacking in people who kind of have everything. And we'll see that as we go through. But anyhow, that was Daniel's background. Now let's take a look at the new culture that Daniel gets invited into. Because here it is. He, that is Ashpenaz, was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. By the way, if you're eating food and wines from the king's table, are you doing okay? I'm guessing that's better than Big Macs and fries. All right? Now, they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And among these were some from Judah, and here they are, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, let's notice a couple of things about this. Number one... Uh, the, the lesson that we want to learn from this, which is lesson number two, is spiritually resilient people recognize and rely on the resources that God gives. Yes, this is a spiritually hostile culture. Um, and, and we'll see that as we go through here. But Daniel's new culture presents some, some very serious challenges, but also some wonderful resources. First of all, as we read through that, Daniel was to get special training in the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now he could have looked at that and said, I'm an Israelite. Why do I need to learn about Babylonian literature and the Babylonian language? But rather than doing that, somehow Daniel recognized, you know, this is an opportunity that God has put in front of me. And it's the opportunity to be well-educated. And since I'm living here, how great that I get a free education in the culture in which I'm living because if if I'm going to relate to these people, I need to know how they think. I need to know what's important to them. I need to know what's unimportant to them. I need to know where their fears are. I need to know where they are most confident because until I know how people think and feel, I can't really relate to them. That was a wonderful resource that God gave Daniel. You know, I know a lot of people who would sit there and here comes Ashpenaz and he puts a book in front of Daniel and it's the Babylonian language. And they're going, you know, why do I want to learn this? Here's a book of Babylonian literature. You know, the three little pigs in Babylonia. What am I going to learn out of that? You know, they would sit and moan and complain about all the stuff they're having to learn that's not from their culture and they don't like living there anyway. And it's bad enough that God has me living in this land, but now He's making me learn the language and He's making me learn the literature and all that stuff. Can't you hear people talking like that? Yeah. But you know, spiritually resilient people learn to recognize the resources that God gives. And trust me, that's not always easy. In fact, I believe that most of us, God has brought resources into our life and they have passed right through our lives and we haven't recognized them as a resource. That's happened to virtually... I know it's happened in my life. Yeah. Spiritually resilient people learn to recognize those resources and also rely on them. How important. You know, Daniel didn't know it, 
But God knew that if Daniel paid attention, Daniel would serve under Nebuchadnezzar. He would serve under Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar. He would serve under Darius the Mede, and then he would serve under Cyrus the Persian. Daniel would serve under four different kings, all in that town of Babylon, all of which spoke Babylonish. Was it fairly important for him to learn that language? (laughs) For the rest of his life, if Daniel had squandered the opportunity to learn the Babylonian language, he would have squandered God's plan for the rest of his life. That's a big deal. It was a wonderful resource. The second thing, that the second resource that God gave Daniel was a sense of community. Notice it says, now there were also from Judah, and there were four names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel recognized how great that God didn't leave me in here all by my lonesome. He brought me three buddies. And as we go through the book of Daniel, we will see that his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, some of you will know them by their Babylonish names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? That these four guys were buddies because they served together in places of great importance. Let me tell you that one of the greatest things you can do in pursuing spiritual excellence is do it in the context of a spiritual community. That, by the way, is why we encourage and even twist the arms a little bit once in a while to get everybody at New Life involved in a life group because that is your spiritual community in which you can pursue spiritual excellence. Daniel recognized that was a resource God had provided for him. Now, moving on, let's take a look at this spiritually hostile culture that Daniel ends up in. What's the first thing that happens? The chief official gave to them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. If you want to win a, 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 a biblical trivial pursuit, then you just say, what man's other name was Belteshazzar? And probably not too many people will know, oh yeah, that was Daniel's other name. Okay? So to Daniel he gave the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now why is that spiritually hostile? Because if you look at their Hebrew names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all of those names in one way or another are tied into the name of God. For instance, Daniel. The E-L on the end of Daniel is short for Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for the Lord. So what happens when they get to Babylon? They take away all of their names that give glory to the God of Israel, and they give them names like Belteshazzar. You know what Bel is? Bel was the god, the pagan god of the Babylonians. So right away, they give them these names that get them connected with Babylonian idols. Now you know, when the boss calls you in and says, your name has been Daniel, no longer Daniel, now it's going to be Belteshazzar, you know that this is not headed in a good direction, right? Yeah. Now he goes on, but 
But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, what was wrong with the royal food and wine? Well, if you study the Israelite law and the Old Testament law, there were a whole lot of foods that they were not supposed to eat that you and I would consider fairly good foods, like bacon. Okay? If you were a Jew, no bacon. All right? It's just not going to happen. I'm guessing that the Babylonians liked bacon. Okay? And... And there were, I mean, many, many other things that, that, that the Babylonians could eat, but that the Jews could not eat. And Daniel looked at the menu that was from the king's table, and Daniel recognized, I got a problem here. The king is going to be asking me to eat things that I cannot eat and pursue spiritual excellence. It was a spiritually hostile empire uh, uh, culture. So he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. So here's lesson number three. Spiritually resilient people rise above spiritually hostile circumstances. Now here's how they do it. By making the tough decisions that honor their eternal values. Now, I would not lie to you and tell you that pursuing spiritual excellence is easy. It is not easy. You will have to make tough decisions. Many of you have had to make those tough decisions already. Many of you, the day that you decided to become a Christian, the rest of your family said, well, you're on the outs. That's a decision I can't agree with. Boy, that's going to change the family dynamics. And you had to make some spiritually tough decisions. Well, the decision you made to become a Christian, it was probably not the last spiritually tough decision you're going to have to make. Daniel recognized, okay, I have all this peer pressure. And I'm in this foreign country. And this thing, golly. Well, it can have only one or two endings. I can stand up and I can say, okay, I can't do this. Would you give, would you, would you do something else for me? Or I can do this and fit in and I can be displeasing to God. Now Daniel recognized, I would rather be displeasing to man than be displeasing to God. For I live with men only temporarily, but I will live with God forever. By the way, what, what, could have been the result if Daniel, if the king had said, eh, we're not doing that. Well, if you study the history of Nebuchadnezzar, um, you did not want to be on his bad side. I can tell you that. Because he would think nothing of just saying, okay, you won't eat at my table. In fact, you will not eat again. Take this guy out and end his life. That's just how he dealt with people who disagreed with him. You know how I know that? We'll see as the story unfolds. This is how, this was Nebuchadnezzar's usual way of dealing with people who didn't agree with him. So that was a tough decision. So now what happens next? Let's take a look at how Daniel responds to this spiritually hostile culture. And, and the, the clue is divine intervention. Here's what the Bible says. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king who has, who has assigned your food and drink. 
Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? Then the king would have my what? Head because of you. That's how Nebuchadnezzar dealt with people who didn't do what he asked them to do. So this was a very, very big deal. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out to you. And here's our next lesson, and then I'll point it out to you as I talk about that lesson. Spiritually resilient people rely on God's intervention. You know, I'm amazed at how many Christian people I run into in life who think that my job is to make it happen for God. So once I sign on and I become a Christian, I have to do something great for God. That's not the deal. If there's anything great that's going to be done in your life, it's going to be God doing it through you by His divine intervention. God is, believe it or not, God is never going to sit up in heaven and shake His head and go, my, 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 am I lucky to have you on my side. That's just not going to happen. Okay? All we can do is make ourselves available to God. But making ourselves available can be tough. Now, Daniel knew he needed to rely on God's intervention. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice here. God was working behind the scenes, even though Daniel probably didn't know it. You think it was easy for Daniel to look at this guy who is getting his direct commands from the king and look at the guy and say to him, Sir, is there any way I could get you not to do that in my life? Could I have a different diet? I think that's probably pretty tough. But what Daniel didn't know is, let's go back one screen to to the passage and see what it says. It says, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. Daniel didn't even know that God had already been changing the mind and heart of that pagan guy. And that brings me to the second thing. And that is this. When God intervenes, even pagans do what pagans don't normally do. Isn't that amazing? I want to teach you that because it's important for you in your daily walk. It's very easy to walk in and think, my boss is a pagan. He's never going to understand how I work or, or, or whatever request I might need to make of him. Well, the problem is we tend to think that God has no power over pagans. He does. God has power over all of us in a very benign and wonderful way. Not in a manipulative way, certainly not in a destructive way, but God has this wonderful way in which He works in people's lives who are amazingly opposed to Him, but He will still work in their lives getting them to do what needs to be done. I find most often when God's people get really, really frustrated with people who are unbelievers, oftentimes it's because God's people are not praying for those unbelievers. They're praying against those unbelievers or not praying at all. Just based on the rest of Daniel's life, who had a habit of praying to God three times a day, I'm just guessing that Daniel prayed before he went to speak to this guy. What do you think? Maybe two or three times. Yeah. And God showed favor. And this guy did what no one... You know, I've I've never bet a nickel in Las Vegas, but I'm just guessing that the odds makers in Las Vegas would 
would, would, would not be gambling on the fact that this guy was going to change his mind because Daniel asked. What do you think? I don't think the odds were in his favor. But the deal was, when God's on your side, you don't need odds. Correct? Yeah, that's the deal. So he, he relied on God's intervention. Now, let's go on and see what happens in this providential strategy section. Then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So, he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Boy, that's pretty amazing. Now, (laughs) there's another lesson in there. Let's take a look at what that lesson is. Spiritually resilient people offer workable strategies. Daniel could have just looked at him and said, sorry, no can do. You know, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and you'll have to do whatever you're going to do. So often in life, you know, as we pray to God and we encounter these circumstances that have significant challenges and there doesn't seem to be an obvious answer, as we continue to pray to God, it's amazing how often God will bring a workable solution to us and, and ask us to present it. I know in my own life, it's very easy just to complain, right? Anybody can complain. But to find workable strategies. That's what God calls us to. So Daniel goes in and doesn't say, sorry, no can do. He does kind of say, sorry, no can do. But he says, sorry, no can do that. How about if you do this? Now, I want you to see that what Daniel proposes is something that relied totally on God's blessing. Can you see that? Because he's going to eat nothing but vegetables and water for 10 days. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not making too many books, bestseller books out there, okay? But the deal is vegetables and water. And what he's saying is, God, I'm going to rely on you. Now, why vegetables and water? Because Hebrews could eat any vegetable you could name. So Daniel knew if they give me vegetables, then I never have to argue about, oh, that's not, that's going to violate our dietary law. If there was any meat in there, there was all sorts of regulations about what meats they could eat and how they had to be cooked and how they couldn't be cooked and all this kind of stuff. But vegetables, man, you could do anything with vegetables you want, eat as many as you want. Maybe there's a lesson in, never mind. Okay, all right. Anyway, now, so... Daniel offers this wonderfully workable strategy and says, try it for 10 days. I want to ask you, especially those of you who have been Christians for a long time, when was the last time that you encountered a situation in which you said, okay, God, I'm going to run a test and I'm going to rely on you and if you don't come through during this time, kind of all hell is going to break loose. Not because I'm going to be mad, but because everything's, you know, the fur's going to hit the fan and I'm going to have no control over it. It's amazing how many Christian people sing about and talk about living out on the edge, but how seldom they actually get out there. You know, the great thing about Daniel is he said, I have faith in God and I know that if I honor God by eating what He says for me to eat, I know God will come through. 
Man, that's a great place to be. Is it scary to be there? Yes. It's scary to be there. But it's a great place to be. Because it's not until you get in that zone and God comes through that you get that assurance over and over again that God is interactive in your life. And I can tell you as a pastor, one of the greatest things I get to do is pick up the phone and somebody says, Hey, I to tell you about this answer to prayer that God gave. Hey, I got to tell you about, I got to tell you. I love getting those phone calls. Because it's just fun to see people walking in this wonderful partnership with God and to kind of see those big aha moments when God comes through in ways that sometimes are well beyond anything that we've asked for. And so Daniel was living right there. And so spiritually resilient people offer those workable strategies. Let's go to the very end of this of this first chapter of the book of Daniel. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. No surprise there, right? God was going to bless that. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were... They were to drink, thank you, and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave them knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams and all kinds of, of things. And at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them and he found them, he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. That's kind of the end of Daniel chapter one. I call that supernatural success. When you team up with God and you make the tough decisions that honor God and the eternal values and the things that God has said about truth, and you dare to believe that your life, you're going to build your life around the truth that God says and not just about the casual observances or even the studied observances of other people who are considered to be experts, but you say you can stack up all the experts over here and you put God over here and I'm buying in on this side because I know that when the dust has settled, this will be true and that will end up not to be true. I will chart my life on the revealed word and will of God now you have a platform from which to pursue spiritual excellence and become a spiritually resilient people regardless of where you find yourself in life. Because all of us are going to encounter some very significant setbacks in life. And some people, when they, can, when they encounter a setback, they lose their faith and they're gone. And somehow they lose their connection with God because they're not spiritually resilient people because there was something wrong with their foundation, their spiritual foundation to begin with. Spiritually resilient people find a way to be next to God in spite of what happens because they know that in the pursuit of God, they will have all that they need. And that leads me to my closing thought. Well, Spiritual lesson number six, spiritually resilient people receive God's blessing regardless of whatever circumstances they're in. Why? Because they know that God is with them wherever they are. And God is with us wherever we are. It's just that some people are aware of it and they tie into it and other people don't. 
if you came to the Christmas Eve service. We all got done laughing and going through all the stuff that, that, uh, that the actors went through. You couldn't miss the point. The message of Christmas is God is with us. The most often repeated promise in the Bible is this promise from God. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I will always be with, there with you. It's just that sometimes we don't recognize it or tie into it. As we close, I want to read you a true story. It's written by a fellow pastor. His name is Dan. And I'm reading directly from what he wrote. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile, helpless, and lonely people waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside and smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there. And I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts and into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and the white pupils of her eyes told me she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by a cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek. It had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also later learned this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, and nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most people I saw in the hallway, but I put a flower in her hand and said, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held up the flower to her face and tried to smell it, smell it. Then she spoke, and much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a very clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some more alert patients. I found one and stopped the chair. And Mabel held out the flower and said, Here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me. This was no ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mom died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to this convalescent hospital. 
For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer came. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. Other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she knew all the words to the old songs. For Mabel, they were not just exercises in memory. She would stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics that she considered particularly relevant to her situation. I never once heard her speak of loneliness or pain. Except in the stress she sometimes placed on certain lines in the hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helped to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with pen and paper to write down the things that she would say. What follows is the story behind that scrap of paper. During a hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed pulled in ten directions at once with all the things I had to think about. Well, the question occurred to me, what does Mabel think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and I asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie there? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, well, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, and this is what she said. I think about how good, how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing that old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without Him, I would fall. When I'm sad... To him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, I met a human being really living like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation from God as to why it was all happening and she could lay there and sing hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that 
Mabel had something that you and I may not have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Power that came from knowing God was with her. And that made her a spiritually resilient person. Would you pray with me? Father, we are truly challenged by the lives of people like Mabel and Daniel. People who, faced with really tough circumstances, made decisions that honored eternal values and chose to find You in those situations. And so they became spiritually resilient people. Father, as we face 2008, I pray for us individually that You would help us to become spiritually resilient people. For in this year, some of us will encounter very significant setbacks. I pray that our faith would not be damaged, but that that, even in that setback, that we would find You and embrace You and that that setback would become an opportunity for our faith to grow even more. Father, we thank You and we pray that You would enable us to pursue spiritual excellence in the context of knowing that You are always with us wherever we are. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.